Hey everyone, Mike Kenoki here with a quick announcement before we get going on the pod today. I'm putting together a Halloween special, but I need your help. I need you to tell me your construction horror stories in your own voice from your own phone. Here's how to participate. Open Voice Memos app in your iPhone or the Voice Recorder app on your Android and just start talking. Tell me a story in a minute or two about something crazy, spooky, wild, weird, or insane about any and all things construction. In that recording, please state your name, your business name, or your social media handle before you start telling your story. Then open your email on that phone and type in info at thecontractinghandbook.com. Attach that story and send it to me as soon as possible. All entries, please, by October 24th. Remember, that's info at thecontractinghandbook.com. While you're in iTunes, don't forget to leave that review and share this podcast directly to social media and tag at The Contracting Handbook, at The Clayway, and at The Larry Clay. Speaking of which, The Larry Clay. I remember backing into the, stepping into the Bobcat as it was running. I stepped onto the pedals and uh, the arm that was, that controls the bucket quickly came up, caught me under my chin. And all I knew was I didn't know which pedal was doing it. I just gave up and I knew I was going to be decapitated, laying off staff who were like family and remember my wife crying and we're just, we're just trying to land on our feet here. That's Larry Clay of Clay Construction. And we're going to get to know Larry a little bit more in the pod. And today's a story about an award-winning high-performance home builder, the circumstances he overcame, and what he's doing today to carry on that legacy. And I'm Mike Kenoki, a general contractor in a very different market, very far away from Vancouver, the oddly wonderful Fairbanks, Alaska. Today, yet another tale of self-determination here on the Contracting Handbook Podcast. The business systems. How do you do a budget? How do you communicate with homeowners? This was stuff I did not have to do before. We just reinvented ourselves as custom builders. Spec game, you can get away with quality that maybe isn't up, up to par, but in a custom game, you better make sure that everybody's doing a fantastic job and that you're communicating I guess got red flags here, Harold. Uh, why do you wrap it in poly? Are you not worried about double vapor barrier? He says, no, I'm not. These utility bills are taking food from my kids. You must have a number of stories based on your experience of how you are going to build a better home or your clients are going to have peace of mind and less issues. Make the client experience better. Uh, I don't know of any builder that can say, I've arrived. It is an ongoing problem you're always trying to solve and get better. And if you don't have the budget, I might not be a fit for you. If you could start over running your business, what would you start doing earlier or what would you stop doing earlier? I have found as I've tried to build a business that you try something. And it doesn't work. So you're trying it a different way. It's like only one builder in a thousand that would call the air barrier sexy.
Welcome back to the Contracting Handbook. It's founder of Clay Construction in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, recipient of countless national, provincial home building awards, including the prestigious Grand Georgie for Best Custom Home Builder in BC. And he is the immediate past president of the National Canadian Home Builders Association. And when he's not out winning awards and building high efficiency homes, he spends his time with his wife and kids. It's Larry Clay of Clay Construction. How's it going today, Larry? Hey, Mike. Great to be on your show. Uh, fantastic. Love to hear it. And uh, I also understand you guys just also won, besides the best custom home builder, you had the best single family kitchen under 100K, 200K? Yeah, 200K. You know, these yeah. are really, really hard awards to win. So really, it really is a thrill when you have a chance to win one. The competition is stiff. Great builders here in Vancouver. Yeah, congratulations. That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I know that, you know, you guys are at the top of your game. We've been, we've been conversing quite a bit about, um, about what it takes to get there and team building and, and, and how important that is. But I understand it wasn't always that easy, you know? No, no. I spent 17 years teaching and decided to start a business building homes. And uh, it definitely has not been an easy road. And what I have learned right now is like, is a master's degree in building. I think it might be a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. Okay. And I think I spent way more money getting it. Got to pay tuition somehow. Yeah, you, you got it. But you know what? It's uh, it's good now. It has not always been good. And the snapshot of Larry and clay construction has at times not been uh a positive snapshot, but uh, I like it right now. As of today, it's a nice snapshot. Tomorrow we will see. You know, from our previous conversation, I know it wasn't always easy. So tell us your, about your darkest day in this business. Well, my darkest day, it was uh, October of 2008, just the onset of the recession. I was hearing talk of the recession. We were still building our spec homes. And uh, I was unloading a compactor from my truck into the Bobcat. The Bobcat had safeties that were not working. And I remember backing into the, stepping into the Bobcat as it was running. I stepped onto the pedals and uh, the arm that was, that controls the bucket quickly came up, caught me under my chin. And all I knew was I didn't know which pedal was doing it. I just gave up and I knew I was going to be decapitated in a, in a blink of an eye. And uh, this is how I was going to be found. And this is how my life was going to end. Fortunately, the, uh, the arm of the bucket kept going up, missing the metal roof by about an inch. Somehow my neck squeezed out. I was bruised from shoulder to shoulder. And, and I lost my voice, but probably more damaging. I was in shock, PTSD, whatever, for about a month. And I walked around in a state of uh, near tears, just could not believe that I was still alive. So my accountant says to me, Larry, you don't have enough money to finish your spec homes, but you're building. And I just realized business going down. I'm facing bankruptcy. And uh, I was laying off staff who were like family and 
remember my wife crying and we're just, we're just trying to land on our feet here. And so I said to my wife, I said, you know, what do we do? And we decide we're going to do everything we can to keep the farm and pay off our bills and live lean. And I remember my wife was a hero. She fed our family between 216 and $300 a month. That was a family of eight. And we had seven grain cereal every morning, homemade bread for lunches, homemade buns, soup for supper. And we put rigid insulation on the windows, bought a wood burning stove. We had the heat at 14 degrees, which in Fahrenheit, I have no clue. All I know is it was cold. And I told my kids, you can put your, you can wear your winter boots and winter jacket in the house. You will not be comfortable everywhere, but you will not freeze to death. And we got through it. And within a year, we had everybody paid off. So after that recession, we realized that the spec game was not going to work for us. We did not have deep enough pockets. So I had to reinvent myself as a custom builder. Unfortunately, nobody knew us as custom builders. We were builders of spec homes. We sold a product, not a service. So I had to get good at the systems, the business systems. How do you do a budget? How do you communicate with homeowners? How do you do daily logs? How do you do a schedule? This was stuff I did not have to do before. So we, we just reinvented ourselves as custom builders. And uh, that was a journey. And it, uh, it's taken time to get there. But I think we have, I'm not going to say we've arrived. We've come a long ways and we still have a lot to learn. What would you say that the, the reason for not having enough money to finish these spec houses yeah, I would say poor planning and not deep enough pockets. It uh, it, it happens to all of us. I, I'll tell you what happens in February of uh, 2009. The realtors in this large subdivision got together, and there was you know maybe a hundred homes. And the realtors would talk about how many people came through their homes. And in January of 2009 one person went through the homes and all the homes, all the show homes. And so it was dead. It was about as dead as, as it can get. So I get a call from a guy who said to me, Larry, I'd like to buy your house. I've been through all the homes and I like your house the most. I'm going to start with you. You're not going to like the number and you can say no. So now you got to know my cost was 850,000 for lot and house. And we're selling in 2009. That means I made no profit and I had no salary. So I paid myself nothing, made no money. 850 was hard cost. He says to me, Larry, I'll give you 599. And and I so I went to my advisors and asked them, what do I do with this? 599. They said, Larry, take it. Because in the 80s, those builders that didn't take 599 chased the market to 499 and sold at 399. And I just accepting 599 was like giving up and losing. I couldn't do it. So I held on to it and uh, tried to sell it for more. So that's what we're facing. And that is why I just didn't have enough money to finish my homes. We assumed some of the homes would have been. Uh, sold and we would have used the money to carry on. So that's really what I, how I got into it. Uh, it was a mistake. 
And so that's why I had to reinvent myself as a custom builder. And so how was that reinventing yourself? Was it exciting times or was it just hard or tell us about it? Yeah, I can tell you that I was entirely not thrilled about this, but I had no other options. I could either go back teaching, which I was not willing to do since I invested so much into the company. So why was I not excited about going into the custom building? Because as a spec builder, I did some customs and they didn't always go that well. Some went well for friends, but for other people I didn't know when I did a custom home, they expected a thorough budget. I remember one house I did the budget for its big, large house, and I did it in about 30 minutes. And I did this by comparing from one house to another. And I did the budget in about 30 minutes. And I remember the trust bill came in, and it was $12,000. And I said, and he calls me up, he says, Larry, we got a problem here. That trust bill was $12,000. I'm like, yeah, what's the issue? He says, well, the, the budget was $8,000. And I said, okay, I'm thinking in my, in my head, it's $4,000 difference, big deal. And he says, Larry, you're 50% off. And if I was 50% off in my business, I'd go broke. I said, good point. So I went to my trust guy. Why the difference? He says, well, Larry, those two roofs you're comparing are completely different. One has, one has three girder trusses. We've thrown in two extra beams, completely different roof. That's why there's a big difference in price. What I learned, if I was to put a budget together, I need to go to the experts, go to my trades, go to my suppliers, and get them to look at the plans and give me a fixed price. And that is when I reinvented myself. I said, I must get good at doing budgets and communicating with trades. That is a valuable lesson that we all go through, isn't it, as, as builders that uh, nailing down your numbers early on. Yeah. And it takes a lot of, takes a lot of work. It really does. And I, 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 especially with custom homes, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of variable budgets there, right? There's a lot of, when it comes to not just the nuts and bolts, but after the paint's dry, everything that's going in, that's where the budget, the budgets can be sky's the limit, you know? And, Communicating yeah. that effectively with clients is huge, but knowing the nuts and bolts numbers. Yeah, I agree. Fixed prices, fixed, fixed numbers from your subs, knowing it, as much as you can. And, and the other thing you have to control is change orders. And you, as a yeah. builder, professional builder, you need to make sure that when there's a change order, it's reflected in the, in the total price. So what you thought was going to be one five to build is now going to be one five five and that has to be communicated early because clients like to say yes 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 and they'll sign off on things but if you don't show that final number uh they get sticker shock at the end so make sure you're being very very clear where they're going to end up yeah the whole path from, from before you start and as those change orders come and all those little just Sometimes they're not change orders. Sometimes it has changed the kind of lighting they want. And it's, you know, a simple thing is a more complicated install and you can't, you're not going to ask your electrician to, to do additional work for free. Yeah, no, exactly. And you, it has to be reflected in the schedule as well. So if you do a change order should reflect in the budget and schedule. hundred percent. Now you're doing customs, how you're approaching the house is different because you do have the clients in there. Uh, as opposed to when you're doing specs with your subs, it's a, it's a pretty simplified process. 
Um, how did you have to change the, how you approach the business in that regard? Well, we do cost plus. That seems to be what our clients prefer. And you, you have a client who's watching how you do the foundation, how you do the framing. They're watching everything that's going to be behind the drywall. In the spec game, you can get away with quality that maybe isn't up, up to par. But in a custom game, you better make sure that everybody's doing a fantastic job and that you're communicating the quality of your trades and why you're doing what you're doing and it has to be reflected in the budget. So there's, you're juggling a lot of things to keep your clients happy at the end of the game, end of the day, your clients have to be satisfied and they have to feel they got great value by using you. And you guys are building high performance homes. Uh, the Vancouver collective of builders is actually major leaders. As far as I can tell in, in, in high performance home building. How do you get your clients on board with the added costs? Well, uh, I'll tell you how I did it poorly and, uh, and what I learned. So perfect. when I started, I, I would tell them, hey, guys, you know what? We can go with insulated concrete forms, better windows, exterior rigid insulation. Let's make this house more airtight. They would say, great, what's the payback? And I said, I don't know, it's like seven to 10 years. And they say, no, nah, I want granite. So let's uh, skip this stuff. Uh, utility mm. bills aren't going to kill me. So I, I kind of struck out again and again. It was like my high school dating days. And I just got rejected over and over again. And, and eventually I learned from a guy, Gord Cook. He really does a fantastic job of teaching you how you sell high performance. And so he started to say, so I started to focus on two things, health and comfort. I didn't even talk about cost savings and, and uh, efficiency. That just didn't come up. So I, I would show a picture of, you know, two, two young kids sitting on a windowsill and you know, bay window. And it's snow outside and they're reading a book and they're comfortable. They're in their pajamas. And I talk about how comfortable the house is and, and, if you have insulated concrete forms in a basement, your basement's not cold. In fact, you can be leaning against the wall with your back to the wall, reading a book for five hours, and you don't have to go and have a bath to warm up because that wall is going to be just as warm as, as any other parts of the house. So I talk about uh, the dew point and mold in wall assemblies and that there's better wall assemblies and talk about air quality. And I just talked about comfort and health, comfort and health. And I started to get good at talking about convincing people about comfort and health and having a home that's going to be healthier and who wants to live in an unhealthy home. And it's, and my clients started to go, yeah, that makes sense to me. I want that. And then I said, and by the way, it'll save you money. And they said, I don't care. You had me at comfort and health. Mm. And so I just focused on comfort and health, take pictures, show moldy walls with, um, uh, you know, I get, I get some great pictures of a, of a window that has mold, caked in mold because of the humidity in the house. And so we talk about the value of HRV. We talk about the value of making your home airtight. 
and you bring in fresh air via way of an HRV or fresh air machine. So this is, this is the focus. And what's happened now is we seem to be doing a lot more high performance. We added a gentleman, Sean Seymour, who many would know, and uh, he's a passive house builder and he has really helped our company advance in, uh, in these areas of air tightness and thermal bridging. And we just, we absolutely love the direction we're heading. That's fantastic. And the, the, the focus on comfort and health, I really appreciate uh, that. It's not just a bottom line for, it kind of removes that bottom line factor for people, right? Yeah. You know, like how, how different could it be from the last house I owned and, and, and it can be tremendously different and it feels good when you're in your house and at the end of the winter, especially where I live and you didn't burn that much fuel because people ask each other in spring, how much fuel they burned. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. you know, and, 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 and people are proud of their house and the, it, it grows on them and, and it grows on your community because of that. Yeah, I would hundred uh, percent agree. And we face the same here. Our, our, our climate is milder. It's the most mild climate in all of Canada, but for whatever reason, Vancouver does seem to be a hotbed of high performance builders. Why is that? I mean, I'm, I'm super impressed. Is it just because uh, there's more people on Instagram? Yeah. So Vancouver wants to be the greenest city or they are the greenest city in the world. And that's their claim. And they have pushed the building code. They have their own building code and they have been asking for air tightness numbers. So it had to be, performance, uh, rigid insulation on the outside, mandating HRVs, electrification, removing gas. So this, so Vancouver really does mm. lead the rest of Canada in their requirements. And that's why passive houses seem to be popular in Vancouver, not so popular in other parts of Canada. And it's really fun that Harold Orr, and the Saskatchewan Conservation House in Regina was the inspiration to the passive house movement in Germany. And they refer back to that little Hubble house in Regina built by this Harold Orr guy. And I've been studying about this house and Harold Orr for years before I finally had the, the honor of meeting him. What's he doing now? Well, I heard about Harold Orr at one of our national meetings. A gentleman, mm -hmm. Tex McLeod, was giving a history lesson and his name came up. And I said, you know, I'm going to Google this guy and see, is he even alive? And not only was he alive, he was on Facebook. So I sent him a friend request because I'm involved in industry. He accepts. I sent him a message just to say Thanks. Hey, Harold, thank you for all that you've done in the industry and high performance. And, uh, you know, you're a legend and I just want to say thank you. And thanks for all that you've done for young guys like me. And, uh, and he is approaching 90. He gets back to me and says something like, uh, thank you. What do you want? <laughs> and, and I said, no, I, I don't want anything. I just, just want to know that I told you, uh, thank you. And, and if I ever meet you one day, could I get a picture with you? And he, he was very gracious and he says, yeah, yeah, that, that's easy. And by the way, let me tell you about my prairie double stud wall and, 
And uh, we, we ended up this great conversation. We went back and forth. We called each other in, uh, many times. And uh, when I was serving as national president, I was asked to speak in Regina. I said, finally, I get to, I get to see this Saskatchewan Conservation House in Regina. Harold is two and a half hours away in Saskatoon. So I am driving to Saskatoon because I must meet this man, this legend. And so... Uh, and he was very kind. We spent the day together and, and he just took me from house to house that he was involved with. And, uh, I had a chance, I was asked to speak in Saskatoon, went up to the exact same thing, spent the day with Harold and had a fantastic time. And, you know, one of these high performance stories that I like telling is, you know, he says, when we do a renovation, first thing we do, we wrap the house in poly. And I say, that's, I guess got red flags here, Harold. Uh, why do you wrap it in poly? Are you not worried about a double vapor barrier? He says, no, I'm not. And I said, that's odd because I tell my friends and staff that you can have multiple air barriers, but only one vapor barrier. He says, well, that's simply not true. You can have many vapor barriers. I said, Harold, you're killing me here. Uh, I know you're going to be right. You have to explain this to me, educate me. He says, you can have multiple vapor barriers. The only thing you concern yourself with is that the coldest vapor barrier is on the warm side of the dew point. You have to think about that for a little while, but it makes complete sense. So he wins, I lose, but I knew he'd win. So that's my, uh, my, my time with Harold as being a real treat and he's about 90 he is still driving he remembers everything and uh he's uh if you put all the legends in a room he would be the legend amongst the legends going back to uh, vancouver as a pillar of green building i think it's interesting that uh they're requiring hrvs this is a this is a, a standard in all homes now and, and they in, go ahead. Yes. In Vancouver, they, what they did, I don't know, it's about six years ago, they required that every house has to have a blower door test. No penalty. We just want to know how tight are the homes. And so after a couple of years, they looked at all the homes, brand new homes built. And they said the average in Vancouver is five and a half air changes per hour at 50 ACH. So, they said, now we're going to require that every home has to be three and a half. And you're going to have to work at it and find ways to get your home down to three and a half. Just making things tighter. And an HRV is required. When you start to make homes tight, you need an HRV to, to bring in that fresh air. Uh, with Sean on board, we are now trying to make our homes uh, tighter than one air changes per hour. In fact, we got a big house in Vancouver gorgeous house that uh, at mid construction. So no interior air barrier, no insulation, no drywall. We just hit uh, 0.64 at 50 ACH. And so we're in passive house levels and uh, we have a lot more work to do. We, we also discovered a few areas of leakage, you know, plumbing pipes, et cetera, mm. that we're going to get those fixed up. So we're going to be well within, you know, I, I think we're going to be down to the 0.4s by time we're done. 
That's very impressive. Uh, and for the audience, can you tell everybody what the for to be a passive house? Yeah, to be a passive house, you need to be uh, 0.6 at 50 ACH. And and, and that's a very tight house. And what I, you know, I got into this, my first time I got interested is when I couldn't feed my family. And I'm feeding my family between $216, $300 a month. And my utility bill would come in at like $300. And And I was like, man, these utility bills are taking food from my kids. So I started researching what does it take to make my home more, more efficient? And that's really how I got into it. It wasn't uh, save the planet stuff. It was just more of selfish. I like to feed my family. And I remember going online and reading guys, passive house guys were saying, what lock set do you use? I use this one because it leaks less. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Mm. That is so fanatical that you're looking at lock sets. And so, you know, that was my first introduction to passive house and how extreme and how much attention they pay to the air tightness. And now we are getting there as, you know, somewhat easily It takes work, but we have to train our trades. We're not going to have success without my framer making sure that we do the sequencing correctly, that we're using the right material in the right places at the right time. My insulator has to know how to tie in, make the vapor barriers or the the air barriers continuous. My electrician, plumber, HVAC, low voltage contractors need to know that it's one wire per hole because you have multiple wires. It's hard to seal that. And my drywaller can't be used as rotozip on any walls that are uh, with the air barrier. So you got to cut it on the floor and then install it. And, you know, they charge us a little more for this, but I can't have them using the road zip on my air barrier. hundred percent. That has got to be one of the most frustrating things that I encountered over the years. hundred <laughs> percent. Un- yeah. Untraining a bunch of guys that have been hanging hanging rock for, you know, 15, 20 years. And then you're like, Hey, actually you can't do that yeah. that way anymore. And they're like, huh? What yeah. do you mean? Who are you? Yeah. So a hundred percent agree. And when you've worked really hard at your air barrier and looks beautiful and you come back and this did happen to us. Uh, oh yeah. They, they came back in and they hacked it up. We told them not to, they still yeah. did it. Wasn't happy and had to, re- I had to repair all of the uh, the road as if cuts right through the air barrier. Mm, that is brutal. Yep, um, I I haven't I haven't had to deal with that one in a while because we've untrained them. But but yeah, it's yeah, it's, nice. You you do because you do put so much time into a a beautiful, sexy air barrier, and and it looks you're just so happy, and then it's your work gets butchered in seconds. Yeah, you know, um, there's, there's like only one builder in a thousand that would call the air barrier sexy. <laughs> I guess I'm one of them. <laughs> You're one of them, but I love it. Um, so what would be, you know, you're at this kind of a pinnacle of your career and, and, and your company is, is still going upwards, but what would be your advice to young builders uh, yeah, to, my- to, to kind of market themselves and kind of, you know, move their businesses in a direction where they want to focus? Yeah, I, I would say 
there's a lot of things to say here, but you know, one is you got to control your debt. Um, make sure that you're not building, don't go buy brand new trucks and everybody has to have their jackets and, and spend a ton of money. So control your debt. Don't, you don't need a big fancy office. Work out of your home. Um, as you get, as you get profit, put that into your branding. I've come to see how important branding is because when you don't have branding, you don't have, you don't have clients. And I remember even after winning in 2013, winning best custom home builder in BC, the first time I get no phone calls. And I remember I had, I had a year of no homes to build and I just won the biggest award in 2013 and nobody was calling me. So building your brand is critical. We find that we have a strong brand now and I get called calls all the time. I got about 40 million in homes and renovations right now. And so it's a good time. Leads does not seem to be an issue right now. Of course, we're in a building boom, but I feel if it slows down, we will still be doing well. So how do you build a brand? I have often told builders that now that we have a brand, I look back and I say, well, how did I get it? And I realized we focused on three areas, awards, leadership, education. So education, you want to be really intelligent about all things building related. So what are the better building practices? You must have a number of stories based on your experience of how you are going to build a better home that your clients are going to have peace of mind and less issues. Have stories and be able to support this with opinion and fact. You've got to be able to talk high performance. You have to be able to understand what a dew point is and why, why you prefer one wall assembly over another and what an inverted roof is and air barriers and air tightness. you got to be able to have these conversations. So you want to get education. If you get a certification with it, like a, a certified builder, master builder, that's even better. Second, you want to focus on awards because there is a segment of the population that is looking for the best builder and they feel that the best builder is the one who is winning the awards. So in BC, we have the local, we call it Haven, the Home Building Association, Vancouver. You can be a finalist and then eventually you can be a winner. Provincially, we have Georgie's in BC. And again, you can, you, when you first start, you'll be just a finalist. I remember when I was a finalist, Georgie finalist, Back in about 2010, uh, I was so proud just to be a finalist of, uh, you know, best house. I, I can't remember under a certain amount of square feet. I it was on my shirts. I was a finalist. I pumped it. Eventually, you become a winner, and then you, if you can be a Grand Georgie winner, best custom builder, best most satisfied clients, best renovator. These are awards that will really, really do your brand. Um, marvelous, marvelous thing. So you want to go for those big grants. And nationally, same thing. You want to be a finalist. You want to be a winner. And again, that speaks to the quality of your company. Lastly, folks on leadership, because there's accountability when you're a leader. And you, if you have a website and you have Google reviews and you are in the public eye and you got social media and you're representing an association, your say your home building association and your president of your home building association, you can't be doing shoddy work. 
you're accountable. People are going to go on and give you reviews. So you have to be really careful about how you treat your clients, the quality of your work. So being a leader, there's accountability. And it, it just contrasts that to somebody that has no social media, no reviews, no website, no leadership, no public profile. There's just no accountability. They can do, I know of a builder here who's done exactly that and has treated their client horribly. And, but there's no, there's no way back because you can't do a review because they don't care. You, you can't damage his brand. He has no brand. So when you have a strong brand, you care about your brand, you just do the best you can to keep it pure, keep it high and uh, maintain that level. And so work on your leadership, your awards and your education. And I know of no better way than to be involved in your home building association. You try to do that outside of your home building association, it is pretty near impossible. So if you're not a member of your home building association, become a member and start working on your brand. Uh, another piece of advice I, I would give young builders is really aim to be nine times out of 10, 19 times out of 20, on time, on budget, with a level of quality that your, your clients are thrilled with. This is not easy. This is a challenge to every builder. You never arrive. And I still have, I have many projects that are like that. They're on time, on budget. Quality is fantastic. Clients are thrilled, many projects, but we still get somewhere. You um, Communication is just difficult. Things fall through cracks. You miss something in the budget. So I'm always looking for ways to double check, make the client experience better. Uh, I don't know of any builder that can say, I've arrived. It is an ongoing problem. You're always trying to solve and get better. I guess it's like, you know, playing a sport, weightlifting, you're always looking to get bigger and stronger in building. You're just looking to get better. So you can consistently with any client be on time, on budget and quality that your clients are thrilled with. I like that analogy to, to like a sport because, because there's injuries, there's things that come along as you're, as yeah. you're trying to build. And, and, and those injuries, if I had to just take that, uh, that analogy step further would be things like you have staff that leave you and you have building code changes and you have, you know, in Vancouver, we just had uh, the cement worker truck drivers go on strikes and no concrete. So you're really, you, you know, COVID supply chain issues. There's landmines all the time that you're, you're as a business owner, you're trying to get through the day without hitting these landmines. And it's, it's a difficult job. So Larry, when did you, find it within yourself to trust project managers to essentially be you for the company out in the field. For a lot of builders, this is the struggle. When you want to scale up, you need to trust someone to represent your vision and your values. Yes. And that doesn't happen uh, overnight. I mean, it started when I started the company. I remember I was teaching. I hired this guy named Joel. Great, great kid. And I said, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I need you to build this fence. And you're going to put the fence post eight feet apart. You're going to go down 26 inches. You're going to do this. You're going to mix it like this. And these paddles are going to have to go in, but it's going to take two of you. So uh, I'll come and we'll lift them. We'll put them all in. And so I came back at the end of the day 
And not only did he wall in, he had all the fence, the fence panels in by himself. I said, how did you do that? He goes, oh yeah, I just found a way. Anyway, so the next day I said, okay, we got to do sidewalk forms and here's what you, and I said, well, you know, I'm not even actually going to tell you what to do because if you found a way to get those fence panels in, you're going to figure this out. So I learned early on to give a lot of autonomy to my staff. So project managers, I, I've been doing this for, for long enough that I've had project managers, site managers who are, um, I've had A's, B's and C's. And I can tell you the B's and C's cost me money. I will spend more for the A's. Daniel, Sean, Brent are A's. They're fantastic. Easy to trust because every one of them knows something that I don't and I learn from them. So I certainly don't carry myself like I am the godfather of truth and, and experience because they all have strengths that I don't have and I learn from them. So my job, though, is to make sure the business systems are in place, that they're following. And I will go into daily logs. I'll look at the budgets. I oversee everything, but I give them a lot of autonomy. But they have proven that they can handle it. And when I start to see them slip up, then I'm going to be stepping in. I, I have had site managers that I could, you know, with a question, uh, you know, do you got this lined up for tomorrow? No. Um, next day, no. Have you even called them? No. We got a big problem. So when that happens, there's the trust is lost. I have to then be watching them more closely, asking more questions. But I can tell you with Daniel and Sean and Brent, when I say to them, have you done this? They say, oh yeah, no, not only have I done this, I've lined up next three guys, concrete's booked for this day. And I go, wonderful. I, I can relax because you're on top of it. That sounds like a wonderful situation because it's really hard to find those, those A players too. Well, and you don't start your business getting those guys because I didn't have the brand. I didn't have the income, the profit in the company to afford them. So it wasn't until later on, I have clients saying, I have lots of clients saying, this is what I'll pay you for the job. This is the percentage we're going to put on it that I could afford a guy like Sean. So Sean comes around and I, I've known Sean for, for uh, 10 years. And mm -hmm. I said, I said to Sean, I'm going to make this public. So I'll have to, hopefully he doesn't mind me saying it. I said, Sean, would you consider working, working for clay? And he says, you know, I would only concern I have is I don't think you can afford me. I said, okay, well, give me a range. Give me a range. And it was pretty high. And I said, for Sean, for you, I would pay it. And he says, okay, well, that's great. Well, I'm talking to four other companies. Went, crap. That's not what I wanted. I just want him mm -hmm. to say, yeah, I'll work for you. So I said, well, let me make this hard for you. I said, if you sign with me, I'm going to give you a $10,000 signing bonus. I'm going to send you, your wife and kids to a five-star all-inclusive resort in Mexico that my wife and I love. And I'll give you and your wife $500 a month for dates coffees, lunches, take the trades out. So Sean, you got $500 a month to spend. And he signed with me, but that's what it took. I actually had to look at his wife and say, what are her needs? So I had to be strategic, but I knew Sean was a family man. And that's what it took to get an A player and keep an A player happy. So one of your project managers moved to Calgary and how is that working for managing projects? Well, at this point, um, so far, so good. 
I'm quite impressed. He does all of my estimates, the invoices that come in, the schedules, builder trend updating, uh, staff hours. So he he's full-time on the computer. And I think he's really enjoying that because he has a large family, eight kids, and he can now be at home full-time as a, as a dad. And uh, he does not have to do site visits. One of the advantages that Daniel brings to the table is that he was a site manager. He was a framer. He understands the entire build process. Unlike many project managers who can work on the computer or estimator, but they don't have a full construction experience that they understand footings and foundation and the steps. He does. And so he's able to be more accurate with the estimating that we do. And he's able to handle for all the work we have, all of the, the again, the estimates, the budgets, the, the, the revised budgets, looking at drawings, giving feedback. The trust in the remote situation and not being able to visit sites anymore is, is, uh, is something I'm kind of processing in my head right now because I, I, I have to see my sites. Yeah, and where a set of plans doing a new build is easy. Where it gets more difficult is if you're doing a budget for renovation, mm-hmm. where you actually have to be in the house, have the trades there, uh, looking at what is already there. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, we have to then just work together. And, and, you know, I might have to take a video, send the information to them. We'll have to make some assumptions and communicate that to our clients. Yeah, when I when I hire, character is important, integrity is important, and if you don't have that, you're you're not a fit for the team. And so, if I had questions about any of my staff's integrity or character, uh, they just wouldn't get very far with me. So, I want to dive a little bit deeper into, let's say some, you know, before you're saying, you know, we did good in this area and we didn't do so great in this area, and I completely relate to that on a house on a remodel, especially, but in the cost plus, the question that I always get asked is, well, if it's cost plus and, and you went over budget on something, it's on the, it's on the client, right? It's not a big deal. Why, why even complaining about it? So your cost plus area, if you do go over, how do you deal with it? For, from the world of moving from fixed price contracts to cost plus, not everybody understands what that is. Yeah, we've handled different ways, and it depends on why are we over budget. Is that a mistake that my company made, or is it just stuff that um, the the price of wire has gone up? So if it's a mistake that our company has made, we sometimes have said, look, we messed up. We're not going to put our fee, our percentage on top of that overage, and that seems to work well with the clients who, you know, we've had to come to and say, you know, we apologize, we're over. We find we're also under in many areas as well. And so by the time we get to the end, uh, we're often uh, under budget because we're a little bit conservative. And so when they look at a little bit over, a little bit under, as we weave our way through, you know, they, uh, you know, they're just happy that we're, we're under budget. We always have a contingency. We put 5% contingency on every budget million dollar house is 50,000. And we just try to give back their contingency as much as possible and say, Hey, you know what? We use 10%. We used uh, 10,000 of your contingency. Here's $40,000 back. Didn't need it. 
And we always tell our clients as well, with your contingency, you got $50,000. The most risky element is going to be the excavation and foundation up the backfill. So after that, if we've got 50,000, I haven't used that 50. You might want to spend a little bit more. Once I get to lock up again, that's another big area of uh, unknowns or risk. Mm. And so we can start to release that contingency so that by the time we get uh, through some, some, you know, maybe there's a countertop they fell in love with, but it's $3,000 more. Well, we now have money in the contingency that we can start to use. Well, I like the sound of that. And one of the things I like to tell the client to never tell them it's more to tell them it's less than we originally talked about at the end of the project. Be like, you know what? We, we did this. We crossed the finish line without without going over budget. And uh, they're a lot happier yeah, it, than when you tell them, hey, you owe me more money. Well, and, and that's exactly right. And that's why it's really important at the very beginning when you're doing budgets, you're up against other builders. We are not always the cheapest builder, but I would rather in the end say we're under budget than be that guy who wins on price and say, hey, you know what? You're $100,000 over. I'm sorry that sucks, but this is not how to build a brand. It's not. And, and I have those builders in my community and I don't know how it's still, I don't know how it's still happening for them, but yeah, you know, and, and I think we all have them. We have a whole whack of them here as well, but that's why brand is important. And so people will seek us out because they say, you guys are builders. We trust, we know the quality is going to be high. And, and the people who are not my clients are people who say, look, uh, I'm flipping the house, just want to in it for a couple of years. I'm uh, not really that wild about the quality, especially the stuff you don't see. I just say, you know, I don't think I'm your client. There's other builders who will do what you want better than I can do. But if you want to live in your house, you want to die in this house, yeah. then and, and you, you want peace of mind that you're not going to have basement floods and roof leaks, you know, then we could be a fit. Yeah, the forever house. It, that's the custom home you want to build. It's yes, someone is someone's dream, and the, like the and re, and remodel restorate or remodels as well. You know, I, I one of my big advisories that when I'm dealing with clients who need who want a remodel or an addition or something, especially an addition because additions are very expensive square foot, and I tell people, is that if this is your forever house, this you know, it's one thing, but if it's not, you might want to shop for another house. It, and it takes a while to get the reputation and the brand. So they come looking for you because it didn't start out that way. When I started out, I was, I was building a better house a, than my competitors were. I wasn't getting paid for that, but it was part of building the brand. So I think for the first 10 years I had to, I made less money as I just built the brand. Yeah, you kind of arrived, put in all that time to brand marketing and branding for a while. You're like, man, nothing's I'm putting in all this extra effort and nothing's happening, nothing. And then one day you just kind of arrive and it's, it's like clients are there and you're not really competitive bidding anymore, which actually I'm curious, you're you, you don't competitive bid anymore, right? Yeah, once in a while we still are. And it depends on the project. Like if, if somebody came to me and said, look, I'm getting prices from five builders. That's, that's how they introduce themselves and like you guys to give us a price. I, I just say, you know, 
I can do that for you, but I charge for my time to do it. And then I have to reassess, do I really want this? If I think it's an exciting project, I'll do it. But if it looks like to me, it's a pretty simple home, budget's going to be really important. They're probably going to be really leaning towards the cheapest builder who can build the code. That's not really my project. Uh, yeah. If it looks like, you know, that the house has a lot of really neat features, they're going to be really preferring quality. And even if I'm a little bit higher, they're, you know, they very well could go with me then, then I will do that. But I often tell people, I said, you know, find a builder you can trust because if you're just playing a game of getting five prices, I actually already know how to win that game. All I have to do is use my get prices from my B's and C's, but I'm, I'm going to tell you they're my A's and they're wonderful. You're going to think you're getting a great clay construction house, mm. but I'm getting prices from my B's and C's, but you're not getting that same quality of house that you may have seen on the website or what I took you through. And, and that's just not a game I'm willing to play. My brand is, is too important. The process is too important. And there have been times when we've had staff that have leaned towards, you know, they got kind of, um, they got um, pressured into being so concerned about the budget. They, they use some B's or even C's and those projects never go well. And I end up cleaning up the mess later and just comes out of my pocketbook. So I much prefer use my A's. If I can use my A's, I just make more money in the end. My clients are happier and they get what they want. Larry, why do skilled trades matter? Skilled trades are critical in a custom home build process because I'm finding the expectations of my clients are getting higher and higher. And I really have to have not only skilled trades, but really gifted, skilled employees who communicate well, have great professional skills, not only speaking, but writing. And they have to have a thorough understanding of the entire construction process to keep clients who can be very demanding and sometimes difficult to keep them thrilled with what's going on. What do you value most? Two things come to mind, integrity and quality. So my staff, that has to be a core of who they are. They, they can't be deceptive. They can't be lying. They have to have integrity. They can't be sneaky. Quality on my sites is number one. It, uh, that cannot be compromised. And when I do see an issue, that grieves me probably more than anything else. We've had sites where uh, we built a home and it has just been, it's flawless beginning to end. And I'm thrilled. I had sites where something hasn't gone well um, and I'm not pleased because that is not our brand. Who is your mentor? You know, I've had many mentors over the years. Uh, I have mentors, probably the most important mentor is a man who, who helps me with my family, my marriage, um, my integrity. So, you know, his name is Don Tilling and he's just a good friend who I've known for many, many years. 
but I have mentors in high performance. Even my employee, Sean Seymour, is a mentor when it comes to high performance. I have mentors in business. When I was a teacher, I had a principal who conducted himself in a way with integrity. He was always calm, objective. I remember him being attacked by board members, and he was so objective about these attacks. I thought, how can you be so objective looking at it from their side? And, and so I've had, I've had many mentors who have rounded out different elements of who I am. I have an uncle who was, who was extremely masculine and strong and how a man should be um, protecting his family and, and working hard and work ethic. And so I, you know, my father in many ways as well, and my father-in-law. So I've had many mentors who round out different parts of my character. Best joke. Oh boy. I know so many. I can't think of one right now. I'm going to guess your favorite tool. Uh, iPad, but wrong. Okay. Favorite tool. Okay. Cell phone. Oh, I was close. I'll tell you, my, my kids, I was talking at their school. They, they want to talk, ask a builder, come in and tell them what a builder was. I came with my, my pouch on, hammer on, you know, dry square. I look very in tape measure, very builder-ish. And I asked the kids, what is the tool you think I use the most? And they said, of course, hammer, tape measure, on and on. And I pull out my cell phone. I said, this is the one I use the most. And, uh, and, and I still had, this is like years ago. They come back to me and say, that's the thing I remember the most about you. So I can say cell phone, but I'm also on my, my MacBook Pro all the time. It's a toss-up, mm. but the MacBook Pro didn't fit in the pouch. What's your most useful tool? It's going to be the cell phone. I can't call on my computer, but I can do almost everything on the cell phone. Mind you, slower. Yeah, I need my readers for my phone, even though I've got my font blown up yeah. to a ridiculous yeah. size. <laughs> yeah, I hear Yes, Likewise. <laughs> well, my guys like Tim Hortons and Donuts, but not me. No, I'm, I'm a little more keto for that. Uh-huh. Okay, so my previous guests... I always have people ask a question for another guest and I'm going to ask you this one. If you could do anything, whether it's a hobby or just something else, something in life you haven't done yet, what would it be? You know what? I've had a fantastic life. I'll tell you, my dream as a kid was to be a phys ed teacher. I did. There was no number two. If I couldn't be a phys ed teacher, I don't know what I would have done. I got my degree, taught phys ed for 10 years. I loved it. And I remember building at the same time. And I was like, man, I had eight houses to build. I'm still teaching. I'm like, man, if I could do this full time, that'd be perfect. And I got a chance to do it. So now what's next? I feel like I've done my one and my number two. I will tell you that I love what you and I are doing. I love mentoring. I love speaking. Mm. If I get asked to speak in Saskatoon, Regina, Ottawa. I love it. I just love sharing the journey. If it helps somebody, wonderful. I enjoy this stuff. So if you ask me what would I like to do in my business, it would be sales. 
meeting people, love meeting people, love networking, love going to socials, galas, awards, and just hanging out with people. That's what I love doing. And if I get paid for that, that's even better. What question would you throw out for my next guest or any guest I'm going to have on? Well, you've asked so many questions and great questions. What would I ask for your next guest? Um, probably a great question to ask is, if you could start over running your business, what would you start doing earlier or what would you stop doing earlier? It's a great question because hindsight is what this show is all about. Yeah, you know what? And I've made enough mistakes that in hindsight, you know, I, you, know you, you learn the hard way. I'll give an example. We sell these spec homes. This is when I first got started. Basements, unfinished because that's what we sold here. But they were cheaper with unfinished basements. Client says to me, I'm building for like a year or two now. Client says to me, um, I'd like to finish up the basement. Can you do it? And I said, well, I'm already building homes in the area. I can finish off your basement. He said, what does it cost? So I didn't do a budget, but I said, I remember saying it's going to be $26,000 if you don't have a kitchen or $35,000 if you do have a kitchen. And they said, sure, let's get started. So, well, my framers are here. I got lumber here. We just got going. So we, we, uh, they made decisions on the fly and they decided to go for a kitchen. So a job gets done. I invoice them for $35,000. And they said, $35,000, not what we agreed to. We said $26,000. And I said, no, that was without a kitchen, 35 in the kitchen. Hmm. I don't remember that. So in the end, I got paid $26,000 and they got a kitchen for free. And I said, I will never do that again. Next time I'm doing a budget. I'm getting them signed off on it. I'm getting it in writing. And I'm not going to let their rush affect my business systems. You, you got to get it in writing. You got to make sure you get your time, do the budget, you sign contracts and you do it right. That is an excellent anecdote for, for builders to hear because that is a place we've all been that verbal agreement. Yeah. You do it I once. don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's not, and it's not that they're liars. We all have bad memories and maybe, I explain things poorly. You just got to get in writing. Yeah, we remember things differently and we remember things how we want. And, and over time, our memories, how, we, how it happened evolves. I'm, I'm yes. just sure of this at this point in my life. There's a lot of versions of, of what happened. So you, you, you've got to have your staff think the same way because they go, oh, yeah, no, we talked about it. They agree. I go, no, 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 no. You have to get this in writing. Or it's going to compromise the build process in the end when they say no. And in the end, I lose the money. I suck it up. So getting as you grow, have systems in place that there's buy-in from your staff. That's just another growth curve. It, as a builder, you often are thinking you want to scale up. And that has its own inherent risks because overhead can get out of control. We were at a place that we had $95,000 a month in overhead, lots of staff, office, trucks, on and on, salaries. I had to build a lot of homes to make a dollar that month. And 
when I realized that this was too difficult of a mountain to climb every month, I went, I had, I had to reduce my overhead. I just started slashing. And so I was a little more desperate. I knew this had, we had to make big changes. So I went, I got rid of the office. I went through our software. We got all kinds of software that we were not using. I made sure we paid cash for some of the things that we had, uh, vehicles. I had to reduce staff and take over some of those roles myself. And we went from 95,000 to 30,000. And at the time we were 350,000 in debt. And within one year, I had a hundred thousand in the bank. Can you remind us what year that was when that was going on? That was about four years ago. So around 2018. So we are always adapting and, and redirecting, aren't we? Now, uh, are you, are your contracts fixed price or cost plus? We tell our clients we can go either way. They have a choice. But when I show them how transparent I am, they always like the cost plus model. Because then I show them the contracts. I show them the, um, the quotes from my trades. And then I say, what's important to you? Quality, uh, price, and and we then it gives them some some ownership in the project, and we discuss with them. I've moved away from that a little bit. That I'm not giving my clients a choice between my A's, B's, and C's. I have my A's are my my great say framers, and I get B framers who are cheaper, and I don't tend to use C's. But what I'm telling my clients now is, if you want a great experience, I'm just sticking with my A's. And if you don't have the budget, I might not be a fit for you. And not that my A's are much more, they may be a little bit more, but I know they're tried and true and tested. They're my best framers, electricians, insulators, drywallers. I'm just sticking with my A's right now. And I'm finding that I'm having a far better client experience for my clients. I, I, yeah, I like the sound of that. And you can't have the B team. It's, it's just, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work in the long run. I have found as I've tried to build a business that you try something and it doesn't work. So you're trying it a different way and you're, you're learning, you're changing. We said earlier, I said a master's, you said a PhD. I have learned so much trying to build this company. It's been fun. If I had to live my life over again, I would be doing the exact same thing, but I would have probably done it a little bit differently, knowing what I know now. Yeah. If I knew then what I know now, oh, every day. Yeah, a hundred percent. If I could just wake up at 40 years of age and say, everything you know now, Larry, get going, uh, I would... I would be doing a lot of the same things earlier, but things like we talked earlier about get it in writing. I just wouldn't be making those mistakes. I'd become as much of an expert at doing estimates as I could and using software like Builder Trend. It's incredible. When I was 40, I thought I had my, I thought I knew a lot. And yes, now I'm going, oh, no, 
no, no, no, no. So, yeah. And I suspect I'll be 70. I'll look back to the age I am now. And I will say, I will say, man, Larry, you knew nothing. Mm-hmm. That's My like- kids remind me that I know nothing. So, <laughs> okay, Larry, is there anyone you want to give a shout out to today? There's many people that I would want to give a shout out to. I got friends and buddies in the industry. So I'm going to say my staff, when I think of Sean and Daniel and Brent and Eamon and Isaac and Adam, these are all great guys who are, and were like-minded. I would say a shout out always to Harold Orr, who's a legend. And the fact that I've had a chance to meet this man twice and consider him a friend. Uh, obviously my wife who's helped me through all of the things we've been through and well thank you so much for taking time out to be here today uh it's good that we were able to catch up i I don't remember when we started talking about doing this but it's been it's been a minute thanks for being here larry wonderful thanks michael my shout out today goes to ryan christian of rk construction out of Asheville, north carolina Thanks for joining that conversation on making the next move. And everyone else, thanks for tuning in today. You got that sense of affirmation. You learned something, value in today's podcast. We'll leave a review on iTunes or a rating on Spotify. Or share this pod directly from your phone to your social media and tag Larry or I. Or just enjoy this jam. All right, that's all I got. Later.